me to Genesis chapter 20. We're in Genesis chapter 20 as we continue our sermon series on the life of Abraham, a sermon series that we have entitled Finding Faith in a Fallen World. And this week, as we see Abraham in Genesis chapter 20, it's an interesting story. Lest you think that Christians ever arrive, lest you think Christians ever cease to struggle with sin in this life, Abram shows us that that is not the case. And we see it very clearly here in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham shows us that even the best of Christians, even the most mature Christians are flawed people who continue to struggle with sin in this life. Our hope as the people of God is not in our goodness, but in the goodness of God. Not in our perfection, but in his perfection. And our hope, as we'll see today, is that God preserves his promises despite our sin, that God preserves his people despite our sin, and that God preserves his plan despite our sin. Be listening for those things as I read Genesis chapter 20, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll dig in and see how those principles come from this particular text. If you would, hear now the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed in Gerar. And Abram said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. 
Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would teach us from it now, that you would show us, first of all, our own sin and our tendency to go astray, but even more than that, we would see your faithfulness to unfaithful people. Please come and show us this through your word and as we come to your table. I pray that you'd be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I was reading recently about an employee who received an unusually large check, larger than what she usually got in her paycheck, and she decided not to say anything about it to her employer. But the next week, her check was for much less than the normal amount. So at this point, she does go and confront her boss. And of course, the boss said, how come you didn't say anything last week when you were overpaid, but this week when you were underpaid, you reported it? Of course, the employee replied, look, I can overlook one mistake, but not two mistakes in a row. With Abraham, we see two mistakes in a row. If you haven't been with us for the whole story, this story in Genesis chapter 20 may sound familiar to you because in Genesis chapter 12, in the order of the story some 25 years earlier, right after God had called Abraham to go to the promised land, Abraham left the promised land because of a famine in Genesis chapter 12, the second half, and he goes into Egypt, and 25 years earlier, he had passed Sarah off as his wife. The same thing had happened. Those in Pharaoh's court became ill. Pharaoh had to go to Abraham to set the record straight. Abraham has already made this mistake one time. We'll talk about how great his sin is and what he's doing here in Genesis chapter 20. But Abraham has already done this one time, and now 25 years later, he was 75, now he's 100 years old, and he does the same thing again here with Abimelech. This is Two mistakes of the same nature for Abraham. So we see, and God shows us here, that even the best of his people, even the most mature, even those who have seen him work miraculous things, that we're still flawed people who continue to struggle with sin as long as we live life in this world. Our hope is not in our goodness as the people of God. Our hope is in the goodness of God. 
And what we see here in this story is that God preserves his promises despite our sin. God preserves his people despite our sin. And God preserves his plan despite our sin. Let's look at those three things together. First, God preserves his promises despite our sin. Do you see here in the text how the promise of God is in great jeopardy? Think about it. The original promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to him and says, if you'll leave your family and the country where you live and you go to the land that I will show you, I will bless you and I will make you a great nation, which means he will have to have children. And through your seed, through your offspring, all nations of the world will be blessed. So we've been looking for this offspring. We've been looking for Abraham to have children. After 10 years, he hadn't had kids from 75 to 85. He becomes, he, he begins to doubt God's promises. And remember, they had that beautiful covenant that they made together in Genesis 15. And then, and then Abraham tries to have kids with Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden in Genesis 16. And in Genesis 17, God makes clear, no, your child, the child of the promise, the one who, through whom all nations will be blessed, will be the offspring of you and Sarah specifically. We saw that in Genesis 17. God makes it clear that the promised one would be a child of Abraham through Sarah, that kings would come from her. So you see how the promise is in jeopardy. They haven't had children. God has even appeared and reassured Sarah that in a short time, just one more year, a couple of seasons, she will have a son. And here they go before Abimelech, and Abram passes her off as his sister, and so Abimelech takes her into his harem. You see how the promise is in jeopardy? If Sarah has Abimelech's children, and she's Abimelech's wife, that she's not Abraham's wife, not having a child with Abraham, not having the child of the promise through whom all of the nations will be blessed. The promise is in great jeopardy because of the sin of Abraham. And we'll talk about his sin in just a moment. But what we see here is that God intervenes to protect his promise, to keep his purposes from being thwarted. God says as much in verse 6 of the text. Did you see it there? In the dream to Abimelech, he says in verse 6, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God intervenes not only in the dream, but he causes some kind of sickness in Abimelech's household. They're stricken with a sickness, and evidently Abimelech is so sick that he can't do anything. He never even went towards Sarah. He never touched her. But it is God who intervenes to preserve his promise. And God preserved Abraham and Sarah and the purity of their marriage despite Abraham's sin. And we'll see next week in Genesis 21 that they indeed do have a son named Isaac, the child of the promise. 
What a comfort this story must be to the original audience. Do you remember the original author of this is Moses? He's writing these things down for the Exodus generation. They have come out of Egypt. They are moving toward the promised land. What a comfort this story must have been to them. Why would it be a comfort? Well, because they've been messing things up in their sin. They've been disobedient to God. They didn't take the promised land as he had instructed them to do. They've grumbled. They've complained. They've made idols. Remember the golden calf. They have turned away from God. And they have to be thinking to themselves, are God's promises void because of our sin? Have we missed our opportunity to be used of God and for God to keep his promises to us? Have we forfeited God's promises because of our sin? And as they read this story to Abraham, they see that God preserves his promises despite our sin. And the Exodus generation, after the first generation does die off, eventually does take the promised land. And God preserves his promise of putting his people in the promised land. In our day, this is a great comfort to the church. Think about that with me. There are many scandals involving the church. There's been great sin and disrepute brought upon the church. There's been much trauma committed by the church. People have been hurt by the church. The church has not served God and been faithful to him and served him in the way that he has called us to serve him. And that's called some to abandon the church. I give up on the church. In fact, it's not uncommon to hear people say today, oh, I like Jesus. I am spiritual, I do pray, but I reject the church. I reject any kind of institutional religion. But this story shows us that God preserves his promises despite our sin. What a comfort this is to the church. Because Jesus promised that he would preserve his church. That on the rock of our confession of who he is, that he would build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. And so even though we have sinned, even though we fall short as an institution, God still preserves his promises despite our sin. But this is not just good news for the Exodus generation or for the organized church. This is good news for you and me. As followers of Jesus, God has made promises to us, hasn't he? He has assured us, never will I leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promises us that his grace is sufficient for us no matter what we face and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. God promises us that. God has promised us 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that though we struggle with sin, he's not finished with us yet. And the Lord Jesus, on the same time he instituted the meal that we will partake of together on that last supper with his disciples, he assured his followers, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back so that you can be where I am also. God has made precious promises to us. And we often are not faithful to him. We doubt him. We act as if God cannot or will not take care of us. We try to do things in our own strength. We run to other things for, for comfort or for security. Our own golden calves, our own idols. But God preserves his promises despite our sin. What a comfort to the people of God. We see that very clearly in the story that God preserves his promises despite our sin. But secondly, we also see that God preserves his people despite our sin. Do you see that? God preserves Abraham. He's not wiped out. He's no longer used of God. But God preserves Abraham, and he preserves his people despite our sin. Now, it's really interesting to me, in this conflict, Abimelech asks three really good questions that I think are always helpful in resolving any kind of conflict. Look at them with me in verses 9 and 10. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, here are the questions. Number one, what have you done to us? That's a good question. What are you doing? Second, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And then he says, you have done to me things that ought not be done. And in verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Do you hear those questions? He's saying, you know, what is this you've done? What's going on here? Second, did I sin against you in some way? That's always a good question to ask. A lot of times we can see someone else's sin so clearly and we don't see our part in it. And so he's asking, what did I do wrong? And then third, why have you done this? What is your motivation here? Why is it that you would do this? Abraham's answer is so interesting. Look at verse 11. Abraham I said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, that's really interesting, because if I was choosing a righteous man in this situation, that looks more like Abimelech than Abraham at this point, doesn't it? He immediately obeys God. He makes restitution when he really didn't even do anything wrong. Yet, Abraham comes in and he assumes the worst about this area. Oh, children of God, let's not always assume the worst. Let's look for the work of God, even in people who may not believe the same way that we do. You do know 
that all people are made in God's image and have an idea of what is right and wrong because they're made in the image of God. So let's look for ways to appeal to that and not always assume the worst about people and situations that we're in. Now, Abraham in his defense, he's probably a little bit scared because of the situation that has just happened in Sodom. And if you read this story in the context right before this, in Genesis 18, he has interceded for Sodom. In Genesis 19, God has destroyed Sodom, and it was a bad place. And visitors coming there were not treated well. And so he may be thinking, well, visitors who come to this place are not going to be treated well. Well, either. But that's a little bit of a jump in logic, right? I mean, I've heard the old proverb that a man once bitten by a snake will jump at the sight of a rope in his path. I understand the tendency because Sodom didn't treat visitors well. Maybe these folks won't. But let's not jump to conclusions. Listen to me. Just because you may have been hurt in another situation does not necessarily mean that you're going to be hurt in this one. Isn't that the mistake Abraham's making? Let me drive a little further. Maybe you're here and you've been hurt by the church. You've had a bad experience. Listen, I know that it happens. I've been hurt by the church, too. I could tell you some stories. I'm sure you have some for me. But let's not just assume because we were treated badly at another church at some point that we're going to be treated badly here as well. Let's not always assume the worst. Let's not always assume that what happened before is going to happen again. That's a mistake that Abraham is making, and these folks are actually treat him very, very well. But Abraham here shows himself to be a coward with very weak faith. He's willing to trade the promise of God that God would bless the nations through his offspring. He's willing to trade that for his own personal safety and ultimately for his own gain. It's the way it happened in Egypt, and it happens again here with Abimelech. Abraham believed that God could not or would not take care of him, so Abraham was taking care of himself. Faith would require Abraham to trust God to protect him and to risk his life for Sarah's life. But Abraham shows himself to be a coward with weak faith. You do know you can be a follower of Jesus and have weak faith, don't you? Jesus talked about it all the time with the disciples. You remember that phrase he used to use all the time? Oh, ye of little faith. They were followers of Jesus. They left everything to follow him. We're like that sometimes, aren't we? We fear as prices go up, as the economy is bad. We wonder if God can provide for us or if God will provide for us. And often we take providing into our own hands, that we don't look to God to provide. 
We look to other things and our hope are in, are in other things besides the Lord. And I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 as people are worried about what they will wear and what they will eat. And he said, the birds don't plow the ground and store up food for the winter, yet they have food to eat. The flowers, they don't sew clothing and worry and are anxious about what they will wear, yet not even Solomon has the splendor of the lilies of the field. If God adorns the flowers, which are only here for a season, they're here today and then they're gone tomorrow, O ye of little faith, how much more will he provide for you? Oh, we can be followers of Jesus and have little faith. Sometimes we think God's not going to provide for us. Sometimes we think he's not going to protect us. The world is chaotic out there. There are many dangers. Let's be honest, the world's chaotic in here. There are dangers in the church. Will God protect us? Can he protect us? Will he protect us? I think of that story in Matthew chapter 8 where the disciples are with Jesus. They're following him. They're going everywhere that he goes. And they get in the boat with Jesus, and they're going to the other side, and Jesus goes to sleep, and this storm comes up. And, of course, they wake up. Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're going to drown, that we're going to die? It's the cry of our hearts a lot of times, isn't it? Oh, Lord, don't you care? What does Jesus say in Matthew 8? Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And he calms the winds and the waves. We can be followers of Jesus and have a weak faith. Abraham here is a prophet. God says he's my prophet. He's a spokesman for me. We've seen Abraham be a kind of priest interceding for other people, praying for them. And here he is deceiving people. I suppose if Abraham were here, he would say, well, not technically. She is actually my sister. We have the same father. We have to. You deceived Abimelech. This is just blame shifting, right? You don't tell him you're married to each other. I love Abimelech's comments. I've given these, this, all these gifts to your brother. Kind of tongue in cheek. Here Abraham is deceiving other people. What message does this send to his household? Here's Abraham, supposed to be this big follower of God, and he's not trusting God in this situation. What does it say to the, the pagans of this area? But let's not just make this about Abraham or his household or the pagans that were in this land. Let's talk about our own sin, our own little faith. Let's talk about our sin. I was doing some research as I was preparing for this sermon. I was thinking, you know, if you do the same sin more than once as you 
grow in your faith, as you move and mature in your faith, I remember there's something about how that ain't good. That's a bad thing. And I went back and was reviewing the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 150. And it asked the question, are all sins or are all transgressions equally heinous in themselves in the sight of God? Heinous, that's a great word. It sounds ugly, doesn't it? Are all transgressions equally heinous? And I don't know where we got off track on this in the evangelical world, right? But a lot of people say, yes. I look stuff at a lot of people like, yes, all sin is the same. Now, I understand that all sin deserves separation from God. And so in that sense, all sin is the same. The Westminster Confession says there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation. That is true. So all sin is alike in that sense. But not all sin is equally heinous. Not all sin is is equal. Some sins are worse than others. Don't you agree with that? I mean, think about it. If my next-door neighbor is going to sin against me and my family, I would much rather have a gossip living next door than a cannibalistic serial killer. I'd much rather you say bad things about my family than to eat one of my children. I mean, we intuitively know this, but somehow we come to the Scripture and I understand that we're all equal before God and every sin deserves the punishment because of His righteousness and holiness, but, but some sins are worse than others. Now, we've got to be careful when we start enumerating them. This isn't a contest to say, hey, your sin's worse than my sin. But let's just establish the concept that some sins are worse than others. Why would that be? Well, Jesus very clearly says that, that some people who are in sin are going to get a worse punishment than other people. It'll be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says. Why? Because their sin is worse. Well, what makes sin worse? And that's the next question in the catechism. What makes some sins worse? And the answer is that sins receive their their, their degree because of certain aggravations. And I'm going to talk about some of those aggravations. What makes a sin worse? Well, number one, the sin can be worse from the person offending. The catechism says if they be of riper age or greater experience of grace. Abraham's 25 years older now. He's seen God work in miraculous ways. He's seen God's faithfulness. And to not trust him in this situation is worse than when he didn't trust him, when he didn't know him very well. And the same is true for us. We're told our sins are aggravated if we are of imminent profession, gifts, place, or office. It is worse for a pastor to commit the same sin as someone who is a a student. Because over time, the pastor should know better. It's a worse sin if someone is a guide to others whose example they are likely to follow. We intuitively believe this, right? A counselor, a teacher, someone who leads other people is often held to a higher standard. The book of James actually says, don't desire to be a teacher because teachers are going to be held to a higher standard. So sometimes sins are worse because of the particular people who commit them. Sometimes it's the 
parties we offend. If it's immediately against God and his attributes, and here Abraham is saying, I don't trust you to take care of me, even though you've taken care of me for so long. The Catechism says it's also a greater sin to sin against our brothers and sisters, the saints. That yes, it's still sin if we lose our cool with someone in the world, but it's kind of easier to be provoked. But our brothers and sisters that we share life with, that's worse. The Catechism says those who are weak, those who don't have as much control, widows, orphans, in this case, Sarah, who's just a pawn in this game between Abraham and Abimelech. And he so easily and quickly gives her up to go into the harem of another. We talked about their marriage problems last week. Now, I think this would probably cause some, wouldn't it? You gave me away. Sometimes it's the nature and quality of the offense. Does it break the letter of the law? Does it break more than one commandment? Did you sin several times? Was it only conceived in the heart, or did it break forth in words and actions? Listen, I know that Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart and you hate your brother, that's as bad as killing. That's the same thing. It's the same attitude. But there is a distinction between it remaining in my heart and acting on it. I understand that lust in my heart is what leads to adultery and that both are sin, the lust in my heart and the adultery. But it's worse to actually carry it out than it is to just think it in my mind. I'm further down the slope of sin. It's worse to commit adultery twice than only commit it once. The catechism asks, is there a way to make it right, or is there no way to make restitution? Is it done deliberately, willfully, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, or relapsing from repentance? That's a tough one for Abraham since he's done this before. If you're in a community group, I hope you'll take some time to work through. I've got a link to these catechism questions and answers and the scripture proofs for them. And I hope you'll take some time to think and to chew on these and to think about our own hearts and how we sin against one another and against the Lord. Question 152, the next one says, what does every sin deserve? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated, that means atoned for, but by the blood of Jesus. Oh, friends, listen, God preserves his people despite our sin. The confession does say there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation, but it goes on to say, but there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation on those who repent. God has provided his son to preserve his people. I call you to turn to him. Finally, we see here in the text that God preserves his plan despite our sin. 
God continues to use Abraham despite his sin. You see it in the last two verses that God has Abraham pray for Abimelech, which is weird because Abimelech seems more righteous than Abraham, yet here God is having Abraham intercede for Abimelech, and God responds to his prayers. The fact that Abraham is broken and messed up and has committed all of this sin when he shouldn't does not render him useless in the kingdom of God. And as we'll see next week, God still sent Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac. And through Abraham's seed, God is blessing the nations as the Lord Jesus is that son of David, son of Abraham who has come to make all things right. So God preserved his plan despite Abraham's sin. It must have been good news to the Exodus generation that though you've sinned, God can still use you for the purposes that he brought you out of Egypt. This is good news for the church. Even though you have messed up, even though there's great brokenness, God can still use the church as a vehicle to produce his purposes in this world. And it's good news to broken and messed up people like us. That despite our sin, God has not given up on us. That God can use us. If God only uses perfect people, then we have no hope. If God uses broken and messed up people, we have great hope that he could use people like us to accomplish his purposes in this generation. What is God calling you to do in this generation? Do not let your sin distract you from answering that call. Because God preserves his plans despite our sin. All for his glory and for our good. Let's thank you for doing so. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you preserve your plans and your promises and your people despite our great sin. I pray that you would be with us as we come to your table and that you would use it to grow our faith that we wouldn't be people of such little faith. That you would help us to see our sin and our need for a Savior and that you would help us to see clearly the provision of your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.